Well, that was some encouraging music, I think. Hope our hearts are prepared now as we come into our time in the Word. And before I uh, get, we get into the text today, I, I thought I would just give a word on uh, why we have done All About Him, including this weekend, 15 times. 15 years, I should say. Actually, 14 years, 15 times. My first weekend uh, here, for some reason the church decided to hire this punky 29-year-old uh, guy, and I, I, I came up here, and as, the, as a new pastor, you want to set the tone, you know, you want to set the direction, the first message, kind of, you know, give the, the right impression and, and to move the, the church in the direction that you want to go. So I thought, I, I want to move the church, uh, I want to point, point towards Christ, and so I thought, I'm going to do this message, and I think I'll entitle it, It's All About Him. So I did the message, it went fine, year goes by. Next year, on the anniversary, it rolls around, and I thought, you know, I think it might be, I might be good to do that one again. Different text, but same truth. So I did it, it, it again. Well, if you know anything about church ministry, anything that you do twice, now is a tradition, of course. And so the third year, okay, well, here we go. I guess we'll do it again. And so we've been doing this now. This is the 15th uh, All About Him weekend. And it's become a, a bit of an annual tradition, which I am all too happy to embrace. I don't think a church can make too much of its Savior. I don't think that we can talk too much about who He is. And uh, as we've said already in the service you know, we don't want this to be the one weekend that we do this. We are wanting to do this every day. But I, I think by having at least one weekend where we really focus on that, um, I think, you know, over the years, I have made so many mistakes as the pastor here, and many of those are well chronicled. Uh, but one thing I think that I look back on and I think, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that I did that is bringing this all about him kind of focus to the church. So I want to thank you, Bethel Church, for uh, this journey that we have been on into what it means to be a Christ-centered church. Uh, you have hung in there with me and stuck, in, stuck it out with me. And I'm different than I was when I was 29. Uh, this church is different than that very first all about him message. But I think that's really what focusing on Christ means. It means change. It means change. And so with that, I want to kind of say, are we prepared to embrace the change that continuing to focus on Christ is going to mean for us as a church? And maybe what it might mean for you in your life? Are you, are you open to what Christ wants to do in your life and changing you? I hope so, because I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm embracing it. I want it. I want it badly. So I say to you here, all about him, 15. Same goal I had 14 years ago. Psalm 34.3. Magnify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt his name together. All about him, 15. My text today is Romans 8. Romans 8. Our focus is going to be verse 29, but I'm going to read the whole paragraph, beginning in verse 26. Here is the word of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's word to us today. Now this section in Romans 8 is very well known. 
If you have been a Christian for any amount of time, I would imagine that you are very familiar with Romans 8, 28, uh, which says that uh, for those who love God, all things work together for, uh, for the good. In fact, you may have that highlighted in your Bible as I read that. I mean, some of you had little stars and arrows pointing to it and yellow highlight. And you can almost remember the time in your life when you really were like, that's so awesome. I need that verse. And maybe you have it on a plaque uh, in a nice frame at home. Or maybe you have it on a little sticky note in your cubicle at work as a reminder in the chaos of what a day means for you at work, that everything works together for uh, the good. And this is, of course, a wonderful truth, and there is great comfort in it. However, too often what happens with it is that it becomes a kind of slogan, a little Christian mantra, a little truism, so that whenever something happens, we pull out Romans eight twenty eight and we say, well, all things work together for the good. And what we typically mean by that when we think about it, or at least what we're hoping in our heart is that this thing that's going on in my life, I am hoping turns out in a direction that I want, right? Because certainly the good that God would want to accomplish here would be uh, my happiness and my comfort and my general uh, in control of the way that things happen in my life. That's got to be what God wants because we all know that he wants to make me happy, happy, happy all the time so that I, uh, every day with him can be sweeter than the day before. This is the way that it needs to be. And yet what we obviously are missing, we can simply discern by looking around and looking at our lives because there clearly are things that have happened that there is no discernible good from it. There are things that have happened in our life that are irreparably broken. There are pains that we've experienced. There is injustice that has happened to us, and there is not going to be resolution, it would seem, in this life. And so if we look at a verse like that and say, oh, Christianity is all about things working out the way that I want them to work out, guess what happens? Life happens and things don't work out the way that I want them to work out. And that is why there are many people who try Christianity and they sort of see it as a a way to self-actualize and they last about three days because things don't turn out the way that we naturally want them to turn out. And they say to themselves, well, there must not be anything to it anyway. And they never darken the door of a church again. There's nothing to it. And they laugh at people who do. So obviously, just from our own experience, What Romans 8.28 is getting at is something different than we might naturally want to read into the text. So what does it mean? Well, I read the whole paragraph, and verse 28 is in the midst of what I would call an epic paragraph of doctrinal significance. I mean, this is one of the richest portions of scripture. It is uh, filled with very big doctrinal words that people spend a lot of time thinking and chewing on. It's a very deep, uh, it's a very deep uh, paragraph. And I just want you to notice what he's doing here is he's talking about God's actions in the process of saving us. And another message can unpack these, but I just have to note them. He says that we are called according to his purpose, which means that in eternity past, God called us to believe the gospel. It says that he foreknew us, which means that in eternity past, God chose to make us objects of his saving love. It says that we were predestined, which means that in eternity past, God decided to save us. We are justified, which means that when we believe by faith that God declares us eternally righteous before him. And then we are glorified, it says, which means that in the future, that there is a coming day when we will receive eternal bodies that are fit for eternal living in a place of eternal glory and holiness. And by the way, that's in the past tense, glorified. And the scholars look at that and say, why did Paul put it in the past tense? Because it's something that is yet to happen. And pretty much the common consensus is that Paul wanted us to realize it is so certain, it's as if it has already happened. 
we will be glorified. He called us, he predestined us, he justified us, he will glorify us. And the point of the whole section there, which is known as the golden chain, doctrinal link after doctrinal link after doctrinal link, the point of that passage is that salvation does not come from us. Could we have ever come up with the calling? Could we have ever done the predestining? Could we have ever done the justifying? Could we have ever done the glorifying? No! Who are we? We're nothing. Who has done this whole thing? It is utterly of God's grace that we are saved. He has done the whole thing as an expression of his mercy and his love. We could summarize this whole verse or this whole section with another verse. We love him because he first loved us. That's the point. Now, in the midst of these deep truths, which are not the point of this message, there is verse 29, just kind of sitting there, often read over. You don't see this one on the plaque as much. You probably don't have verse 29 on a sticky note. I hope that you do this week after today's message, because it's saying something that is uh, incredibly significant and is the point of this message today. Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And what that means is all about him, 15. Let's just walk through verse 29. Predestined. The word literally means to choose beforehand. It is used twice here. In this little passage, it's used in other places in Scripture, which is one reason I always kind of giggle inside a little bit, because I have people that will come up to me and say, do you believe in predestination? And inside I'm kind of like, because it's a Bible word. I mean, it's not whether you have to believe in predestination. That's not the issue. The issue is what it means, and people will argue about that, and answering that question is not the point of this message. So, for those, for those, for you predestination Nazis here that are just suddenly interested in what this text is saying, this is not a message about predestination. Other than to note that this means that God has purposed, it's a, it's a purpose statement. He has purposed to do something. He has predestined us to become something. What? Predestined to be, what's the next word? Conformed. Now let's talk about this word. This is a word that in the ancient day, in the ancient language, it was, uh, it was used for the stamping of coinage. Okay, the stamping of coinage. I have a picture of one of the uh, ancient coins. This is a first century uh, coin. Not that different from the quarter that you have in your pocket. Basically what they would do is they would, they would take a precious metal and they would heat it up, warm it up, and they would have a stamp. And the stamp would be uh, typically the face of the leader of Rome, the emperor of Rome. So uh, Julius Caesar, Nero, whoever. And they would take that stamp and they would press it upon that metal. And when the stamp came off... This coin has now conformed to something else. The coin has become something that it wasn't before. It looks like somebody else. The stamp. So that in the ancient day you could, you could tell, uh, you could tell the currency because you would look and say, oh look, there, there's, it's, it's a, it's a Nero coin. It's a Roman coin. It's a Julius Caesar coin. It's, it's a, it's a Roman coin. How do I know that? Because his image is on the front of the coin. So conform means to become something that you were not before. To bear the image of something that you heretofore did not have. Image is the next word. We have been conformed to the image. And you see now how this stamping thing works. Where the likeness of the emperor or the leader has been pressed down upon the coin. In fact, some of your translations go with likeness. We've been conformed to the likeness, predestined to be conformed to the likeness of the son. What this means is, is that 
it's, it's not a physical likeness that we are conforming to in Christ, which I'll get to in just a moment. It is not physical like a coin. It is deeper than that. God has predestined us to be conformed to the likeness on the heart level, the inner man, where, where, where your attitudes come from, where your priorities lie, the, the, where your value system is, where your loves are at. On the heart level, on the inner man. He's not trying to make us like Christ outwardly. Jesus was a man, so women, you can be glad for that. We're not, we're not conforming to the likeness of Jesus so that whatever, um, we know he had a beard, so all godly men will wear beards. I see two in the front row here right now. Godly because your facial hair and sitting in the front row. Two great marks of godliness. He's not saying that. It's, he's changing our hearts. He's conforming us in, on the level of our personhood to the attitudes and the actions of somebody else, which he concludes the clause with. The son, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that is Trinitarian language. Let's just talk about that a moment. His son. Who is the he of the his? Well, we go to the Trinity. We talk a lot about the Trinity here at Bethel because God is a Trinity. He is a triunity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we know in the story that it is the Father who sent the Son. And so the Father purpose predestined in eternity past... That he would, by virtue of the sending of the Son, that he this sending and redeeming of a people his own would result in the stamping of the likeness of Christ on the hearts and the lives of his people. It is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who after his incarnation was given what name? Okay, you're like, oh, that incarnation was a big word. Is this a trick question? If I went into the third grade class right now and said, what is the name of the Savior of the world? They would all know the answer to that. And here I am in big church and you're all looking at me like, I don't know. I know it's all about him weekend, but is it Nero? I don't know. Who was not a character in a movie. He was actually, he was an emperor of Rome. What was the name that was given to him? Jesus, which means Savior, okay? Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, the Anointed One. So this little statement here, filled with meaning, God the Father, in eternity past, purpose to indelibly stamp upon the character of His people, the blessed spiritual likeness of His Son, Jesus. And so we see then that God's purpose back in eternity past was Christomorphic, as one man called it. Christomorphic. He is morphing us. He is changing us, transforming us increasingly into the very image and likeness of his son. Which leads to the question, why? Why does God the Father want to conform us to the likeness of Jesus. And the answer to this is simple and profound. Here is why. The Father, listen, the Father loves the Son. God the Father loves, delights in, rejoices over, admires filled with affection, filled with love for the Son. Listen to some other passages of Scripture that speak to this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father thunders over that baptism scene 
I delight in him. I love him. Transfiguration. He was still speaking when a bright cloud, he being Jesus, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Actually, I'm not sure that's Jesus. I think that's Peter, actually. But that's not the point. The point is what the end of the verse says. A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And here Jesus now describing this relationship between he and God the Father. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Now friends, do you think about God this way? When you think about what God is like, what, like what comes to your mind? Does this come to your mind? Passionate love, pure Love, delight and rejoicing and energy and gladness between the Father and the Son. So many Christians, I think, don't think this way. Don't, don't concept God as being a, a God of vibrant relational joy and love. And yet that's clearly what we see between the Father and the Son. So why did God the Father go to all of this can I call it trouble? If, if the purpose of this, predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, we could look at the whole thing and say, is it really worth it? I mean, if you think about all that this means, God the Father creating the universe, it's big, have you noticed? Just speaking out, and here comes the universe, and galaxies, and all the planets and the stars and, and when it comes to earth forming and crafting a unique place where we have what we have here in the oceans and we have the mountains and the skies and the seas and we've got animals and we've got atoms and we've got, uh, People like us that he makes uniquely with this desire spiritually to connect with our creator. And when you think about all that happened in this story, the story that God wrote where he creates everything and it's morally perfect. It's, it's very good as he says. And then to see man fall into sin and all of the corruption and the whole universe now groaning under the anguish of this corruption. And to see in the story how God enters into all these covenants in the Old Testament with these people, Adam and Abraham and David and Noah, and to go to the trouble of selecting a group of rascally people like the Israelites who constantly are rebelling against him. He says, do this. They do the opposite every time, it would seem. And then loving them still, and then them turning against you and sending a a judge, and them turning against you and sending a great king like David, and then the whole thing falling apart. And uh, I mean... We're talking a lot of trouble here going to all of that. And then to see, of course, the glory and what it meant for him to send Jesus to incarnate the Son of God into a fetus and to nurture him and for him to live on this earth like the rest of us, filled with weakness and walking around every day, needing food and water and rest, and him dealing with all of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the even his disciples who he handpicked, called them friends, and they're all the time turning against him, running away in this time of trouble. And to see his passion, that week of passion where he teaches in the temple and he's doing miracles, and yet people are scheming against him, including one in his inner circle. And to see him arrested and beaten and tried wrongfully and then beaten some more and then flawed, carrying his cross, crucified on a cross, giving his life willingly, dying, Jesus dying. And by power that only God the Father can have, reaching into that tomb and resurrecting him from the dead, ascending him to heaven, and then assigning these rascally disciples to go out and to tell as many people as they can that whoever believes in him will be saved. And then you have the whole church and what a rascally people we are when we gather on Sunday and praise his name and go out through the week and act like we don't care and he loves us anyway and he hangs in there with us and he's been doing that for like 2,000 years, might have 2,000 more years, might have two days, we don't know, coming back and ruling and all the, I mean you think about 
all of the trouble that the Father has gone to if the purpose behind this is the glory of the Son and conforming us to the likeness of the Son, I would have to look at that and to me say, seems like a lot of trouble. Seems like a lot to go to. Just to make us look like Him. I mean, I'm glad for it. I'm glad to exist. Better than non-existence, I think, is existence. But God, what? Why'd you do it? Seems like a lot of trouble to me. What I want to say is that why he did it is that not only does the Father love the Son, but he loves everything that reminds him of the Son. Everything that resembles him, he loves it. Which really isn't all that different than us. In fact, just let me take a little poll. How many, how many grandparents do we have here? Any, any, any grandparents? We have some grandparents? All right. If I come down here, we had like the grandparents section seemed to be in here somewhere. <laughs> any of you grandparents? Anybody got pictures of your grandkids? Pull them out if you do. Okay? Any pictures of grandkids? Start pulling. Here we go. You got a wallet? Pull it out. Last night was very compliant. Let's see some action here at 9 o'clock. Okay? All right. There's like a thousand people waiting, but it's okay. Take your time. Okay. Well, here, here we go. Notice his billfold. You open it up. Look who you see. What's her name? Breezy. Breezy, yeah. Breezy. Breezy. How old's Breezy? 18. 18 years old. So you don't have your wife when you open up. It's, it's your granddaughter. Wow. She's on her desk in her office. Okay. All right. Okay. Do you get any more here? Oh, yes. This is nice. I only needed one or two. Okay. All right. So you have... How many do you have? Three? Five. Five. There's five of them. And what are their names? Jonathan. Luke, John. Jonathan. Jonathan. Benjamin, Anna. Benjamin and Anna. Christopher. And Christopher. All right. All right, everybody. See that? It's a good-looking group they got right there. All right. Very nice. Oh, yeah, send it down. Here we have a tech-savvy uh, tech uh, grandfather who has uh, has the, the, the two darlings on the phone. Again, let me note, when you turn the phone on, it's not his wife that you see. It is the, it is the, the darlings. And what are their names? Blake and Brooke. Blake and Brooke, B&B. Yeah, they're cute. That's, that's great. You know what I'm going to bet? I'm going to bet that if we all got in a big bus and we went to their houses... And we went walking in. Maybe two steps at the most it would all, is all that it would take to arrive at what? Pictures of the kids, but now of the grandkids, right? And they would be like, oh, this is my granddaughter, and she's so lovely, and she's, this is her, and this is my grandson. And, you know, they'd have the beautiful frames around it and maybe have the little, you know, those little lights that focus on them. And... Uh, <laughs> little incense burning around in front of them, right? You're all laughing because you know it's true. Grandparents and parents as well, they're like nutso over their kids, right? And so they, they love these pictures of their grandkids. I mean, they can't get enough of them and they've got tons of them and they pop up on their phone every time they make a call. And why do they have this? Well, it's because they love them. But wait a second. That picture is not actually the grandkid. Have you noticed that? I mean, grandparents don't like mount their children like the bass on the, on the wall. Uh, <laughs> It's not the actual child. That is, that is a piece of paper with ink on it, right? 
It's not the kid herself or himself. And yet they love that. Why? Why? Because it reminds them of the child, right? And because they love the child so much, they love anything that looks like the child. Are you with me? Okay. Why did God the Father predestine to conform us to the likeness of his Son? Because he loves the Son. And he loves him so much that he delights in anything that looks like him. And so God has decided to make us, we're the pictures. We're, we're, we're the picture gallery. And in God's plan, he decided not just pictures, but living, breathing, spiritual beings like us. That he could stamp the likeness of Christ upon. And he can fill heaven and the new earth with likenesses of Jesus. And every time he sees us, he's, oh, I see my son. I see my son in her. I see my son in him. Why has he done it? The father loves the son. And we're the pictures. Predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's why God is doing what he is doing and why we have the immense privilege to be a part of it. Do you feel that today, Christian? What a glorious thing it is to be a part of God's redemptive plan and for God the Father to be delighting to impress upon us and shape and morph us into the likeness of the blessed son that he loves. How does God the Father do this? How does God the Father do this? Now, some of you would say, well, I believe that he does this when we die. And of course he does. We spend a lot of time studying 1 Corinthians 15, that there is a final glorification that's coming. And at that time, we are going to be made holy and righteous. As 1 John says, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So death and final glorification for us is going to complete this process. But what is often missed, I think, in our lives, in the day-to-day life, is that God is doing that now. That this transforming into the likeness of Christ is something that he is doing in us every day. Indeed, is doing, I hope, right now in this service. He is conforming us to the likeness of his son. Here is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Now class, what tense is that word beholding in? Is it, is it past tense? No. <laughs> You're all like, I think the answer is no, but I'm saying Jesus because that's how I'd be the right answer. <laughs> It's all about him weekend, right? All right, look at that. If it was past tense, what would it say? Beheld the glory of the Lord. So we'd say, oh, well, this is something when you become a Christian, it happened once, never happens again. Is it a, uh, is it future tense? No, because then it would say, we will behold the glory of the Lord. It is present tense. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of Christ. And there is a reason for that. Now, in saying that, I have never seen Christ with my physical eyes. It's not talking about some kind of a vision where suddenly I see him actually for who he is. What this is describing is an inward spiritual apprehension in the gospel of who Christ is and what he has done. It is, it is me with the eyes of my heart and soul hearing the gospel that Christ is the son of God and savior of the world and died on the cross, resurrected on the third day. 
inside of me there is a spiritual stirring and a kind of apprehending of the glory and the beauty of Christ that turns my heart in such a way that I believe that He indeed is the Savior and is my Savior. And that this beholding of Christ's glory is an ongoing apprehension inwardly in the life of the believer as I am ongoingly seeing with my heart that Christ is the most glorious, that He is the most beautiful, an ongoing delighting in the glory of Christ. This is what we've been talking about in The Walk, our series this summer. That we are seeking to integrate our faith and our beholding of that glory into the dimensions of my life. My journey is, I am, I am on a journey, and the end of this journey is a person. It is Christ. Our being transformed. As I continue to marvel as a Christian... I never get over the fact of who Christ is and what he's done for me as I continue to marvel at that. That seeing changes me. It draws me. It humbles me. It convicts me. It, it, it nourishes me. And it transforms me into the likeness of the Son. This is what God is doing the glory of Christ increasingly reflected in my life as my attitudes and my actions and and my desires are more and more attuned to what Christ's are. This is the walk. This is the journey. It's like what we talked about last week. Remember this graph from last week? I said to you, Christian, this is what's going on. If you're a genuine believer in Christ... Jesus is now reigning in your heart and in your life. And it is his purpose to expand that lordship into every aspect of our lives. And I said, I'm warning you, Christian, look out, God's taken over. And every true Christian will say, I want him to. It's a good thing. So that the Christian journey, the walk, ought to look like this. Here I am, when I, when I become a Christian, I say, Jesus, I profess you as my Savior. But then over time, as I behold this glory, increasingly, I am being changed, and His reign is extending into my life. So that I am growing in my faith. Now, we never make it all the way in this life, because we still got sin, and we got sin nature and all that. We are never going to be totally like Christ. But we are growing in that. So then increasingly, His rule and reign is taking over my life. Notice that this is a far cry from what all too many Christians do in their faith. They say, Jesus, I want you to rule and reign in my church, in my Sunday mornings. I, I, want, I want you ruling and reigning in my children because I want them to grow up and be good moral people. I want you in those categories, but don't be messing with the other parts of my life because that's mine. And as John Piper said in the video this morning, there is not one inch in this universe over which Christ does not say mine. And that includes your heart, friend. So that in a sense, we don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. We are submitting our life increasingly in a delightful surrender to His good purposes in every category of my life. And as that happens, His image is being impressed upon my life so that God changes us from the inside out. My heart is changed so that my my actions on the outside are consistent with my heart on the inside which is my heart and the inside is more and more like Christ, my life is increasingly lived like Him. Did you get that? That's an important truth. We have been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. And that's how He does it. Now I want to turn to just some implications for this, for each of us and for our church. Here's the first. 
Everything works together for good. If for you, looking like Jesus is good. Everything works together for good if for you, looking or being like Christ is good. Let's go back to verse 28. Everything works together for the good for those who love God, called according to his purpose. What is the good there? What does the passage say is actually good? Notice that verse 29 is the explanation of the good in verse 28. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, the good in verse 28 is our conformity to the likeness of Christ in verse 29. So that I can say to you, my dear friend today, if you think looking like Jesus more and more is a good thing, then there is nothing that is going to happen in your life that does not accomplish that goal. Which means it all works together for good. Now, if we cling to a definition of good that is somehow our comfort, is our, uh, what I, the way that I want things to go, your faith isn't going to last into the parking lot today. Because every day there are things that happen to us that we deem bad. You know what I'm saying? So we had better understand the good that God is wanting to accomplish in us. God loves us too much to allow us to continue to live for ourselves. And the things that he brings into our life are accomplishing a good because they are weaning us off of ourselves. They are humbling us. They are taking away our pride. They're they're helping us to see that this world is not worth living for. They're helping us to keep our minds set on heavenly things instead of on earthly things. These troubles are good. Now, you say, well, is everything like that? No, there are injustices and there are horrible things that happen for sure. But as Joseph said, God, or you intended it for evil, but God intended it for what? Good. Everything in your life will work together for good if looking like Jesus to you is good. And I wonder how that might change your perspective on the trial that's going on in your life. Because you know what we do with trials when they come to us? We suddenly become prayer warriors, don't we? We get on our knees, we go on prayer walks, and we're like, Oh God, I cry out to you in Jesus' name. I've got this trial that I'm going through, and I ask that you would take it away. Take it away, God. That would be good. Or take, take him out of my life. Vaporize him. And then I'll marry somebody else. It'll be great. (laughs) We view trials and troubles as things that a good God, if he loved us, would eliminate from our life. And God's in heaven looking down, hearing those prayer going, why would I do that? It's just starting to bear its good fruit. You're praying to me. You haven't prayed in three months. Now you're on your knees praying to me. You're acknowledging that I'm the one in control and you are not. You are humbling yourself under my mighty hand. Why would I take that trial out of you? It looks the good that it's bearing. You look more like my son right now than you've looked for three years. In God's eyes, it's a good thing when we look like his son. Who went into the Garden of Gethsemane, bowed the knee said, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, may it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How about doing that with the trial? Keep it here, God, if it's your will. That's what I want. Keep the pain. Keep the person. Keep the disease. If I can become more like Christ. Because to me, that's a good thing. Christian, nothing will ever happen to you that isn't wonderfully good if you think being like Jesus is good. 
The second implication is this, and I mean this just for our encouragement today. Take heart. There is no bondage to sin that is stronger than God. Do you realize what this is saying? God the Father is conforming us to the likeness of His Son. That means that this thing that I have in my life that I cannot lick, this sin that I have, that I can't get over, this addiction, my... And I'll I mean, run through the list. I got a sex thing. I got a porn thing. I've got, I've got a bad attitude. I've got bitterness about this thing in my past. Whatever it is that is just clinging to me and I've cried out to God, give me victory over it. I want to be past it. This verse is saying someday you will. Someday we will be completely conformed to the likeness of Christ. God has predestined it. It will happen. And it's an old illustration. You've heard it before, but it's such a good one. You've probably heard the story of the, of the, of the, in Italy, the sculptor who decided he was going to give a, a sculpture, he was going to sculpt something as a gift to his hometown. And so the, the, the day came and they hauled this huge marble block into the, into the downtown area and all the townspeople came out and were looking at this huge block and there's the sculpture, the sculptor guy and they said, hey, what are you doing with this? He says, I'm making a horse. And they're all like, how are you going to make a horse out of that? And he said, it's very easy. I'm going to chip away everything that doesn't look like a horse. It's old but good. What is God doing in my life? He is chipping away everything that doesn't look like Christ. Chip, 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 chip. And this week you've had chip, 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 chip. And you're going, I don't want this anymore. We ought to if we see it shaping our hearts more like Christ. Do you see how important it is that we understand the walk? Do you see how important it is to understand the destination and what God's real purpose is? He's not, he's not here primarily simply to make us happy, happy, happy all the time. He has deeper, more glorious aims in mind. Final thing, third is this. The more Christ-centered we are, the more Christ-conformed we will be. And that statement right there summarizes what I have very imperfectly but have tried to do in my ministry here at Bethel Church, is to try to make much of him so that we might be enamored with the person of Christ more and more with the goal of that producing Christ-like change in our life. As Spurgeon said, nothing puts life in a believer more than a dying Savior. What does the church need? What do I need? I need to see Christ in His glory and His beauty. I can read books about how to do this or that. I can go to seminars on this or that. But the one thing that a Christian needs more than anything others is to admire Christ. To see Him in His glory. To see what He did and what He is doing and what He will do. And to see those things as being greater than and more important than the billion things in this world that cry out to us to think that they are significant. They pale in comparison to the glory and the beauty of Christ. And a church that is enamored with Christ will be a church that is Christ-morphing. Becoming more and more like Him. Those two always go together. So that the role of the leadership of the church is to focus the vision of the congregation upon the glories and the beauties of Christ. So that that good fruit might be born in the church. As people love Him more and more, and that stamp is more and more on my heart, now I am wanting to serve people like He served people. Now I'm wanting to live selflessly. Now I'm willing to die to myself and to serve others. Now I'm not about making much of me, but to be a servant of all. Now I am living in my life, and the congregation is living in their life more and more. The life of Christ, the new life of the Spirit, lived out in a world that so desperately needs it. The higher we lift Him, the more like Him we become. 
So that a Christocentric Christian is a Christomorphing Christian. A Christocentric church is a Christomorphing church. A Christocentered marriage is a Christomorphing marriage. A Christocentered family is a Christomorphing family. When Christ is at the center, friends, the sheer gravity of His glory just draws all the other components into that center and that core and it changes us transforms makes us like him and god's people want that so i wonder today where are we at where are you at today who is at the center of your life who do you really think is all that i submit to you that this ought to be Jesus. I wonder, as a church, are we ready for the change that beholding the glory of Christ increasingly will call us to as a church? We are constantly morphing, and we need to be. Are you prepared for change? Are you prepared for sacrifice and service for the kingdom and for Christ? Can we say, magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together? Can we say that today? Oh, Pastor Steve, here you go again. I mean, listen to that guy up there. It's all about him, 15. Can we get over that, please? Isn't it time for something a little bit different? Can't this guy get some fresh vision and message? I'm sort of tired of this one. It's been around a long time. We need something new. I would say to you, we don't need less of this. We need more. We need more. More dying to self. More beholding. More exalting. More admiring. More magnifying Christ in our worship. More magnifying Him in the preaching. More magnifying Him in our homes. More magnifying of Him in every component of our life, his likeness, his glory, his loves, his beauty, more of Christ. The destination has an end, and it's him. Spurgeon echoes my heart with the final words he ever preached in his life. He said this, I sometimes wonder that you do not get tired of my preaching, because I do nothing but hammer away on this one nail. With me it is year after year, none but Jesus, none but Jesus If you have outgrown the need of a sinner's trust in the Lord Jesus, you have outgrown your sins. These 40 years and more I have served him, and I have nothing but love for him. His service is life, peace, joy. Oh, that you would enter it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus this day, June 7th, 1891. I say the same thing to you on It's All About Him 15. We need more of him more beholding, more glory. Amen. Would you stand for prayer, please?